Welcome, and thank you for listening to this presentation, hosted by the Center for Catholic Studies, located at Durham University in Durham, United Kingdom, a center for Catholic theology in the public academy. For more information, visit our website at www.centerforcatholicstudies.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at CCSDHAM. The following lecture was presented in June 2019 at the New Song Conference, Biblical Hebrew Poetry as Jewish and Christian Scripture for the 21st Century. The conference was organized in partnership by the Center for Catholic Studies, the Durham University Center for the Study of Jewish Culture, Society, and Politics, and Ashaw College. This lecture was given by Dr. June Francis Dickey, postdoctoral researcher at the University of KwaZulu-Natal in South Africa, and is entitled, Psalms Translated for Life in the 21st Century, A South African Perspective. It's a little bit different. I'm going to be going through, first of all, as a Bible translator, I'm particularly interested in the way the text is received. And having worked with marginalized communities for many, many years, my interest is particularly in how the smaller groups or the, the outside of the main um, quorum of peoples understand the text. And so I'll be going through three case studies, uh, some, I'll give details of that, but to start with, I think we better start with, I can get this to work, yeah. All right, I'm going to just quickly do a brief summary of approaches to Bible translation. This may be well known to some of you. So I'm going to go very quickly. All the details are on my paper, and welcome to pursue it further there. So first of all, of course, we started with the literal translations, the King James Version type, word for word. And for many years, and in fact still in some communities today, that is considered the most accurate. I've been working in Zulu, and they're about to bring out a new Zulu translation, and unfortunately, they still believe, the bishops who are in charge, that this is the most accurate way to do translation. Now, we moved away from that long ago in the, in the 1960s. The focus became the response of the receptor, and the idea was to try and get the recipient of the text to respond in the same way as the original audience would have done so. And that came to be known as dynamic equivalence, and that some years later was extended to functional equivalence. And what I'm particularly interested in is a part of functional equivalence called literary functional equivalence, which was spearheaded by Ernst Wendland. He's done amazing work. And any of you that are really interested in Hebrew poetry, I highly recommend you look at his approach. He gives 10 clearly detailed steps of how to analyze the Hebrew text in order to produce a literary um, translation that's got the rhetorical force of the original and yet fits into the culture of the community that are receiving it. My interest as well, of course, literary rhetorical or literary functional equivalence, because it's poetry, it's spoken. Poetry has to be sounded out in order to hear the poetic features. And so that brings in the whole notion of orality studies. And orality began to intersect with Bible translation um, quite some years back, the 1990s. And then we got people, also James Maxey, beginning to extend orality studies into performance criticism. 
And that's what I've been trying to do, to perform the scriptures in an oral way. And my particular interest is with local communities. So it's not with trained Bible translators. Right, what's the advantages? It restores some of the dynamic quality of the original text when it's performed. What I would say is 3D or amphitheater effects, not two-dimensional flat on a page. And this is how the way many communities operate, certainly in Africa. They are all communities. The Zulu people have had writing for years. But when they've got an important message to transmit, it will be done orally. But this does bring challenges in Bible translation. How are you going to evaluate the faithfulness of such a translation? And that's a big issue, of course. Changing concepts of translation. The last since the turn of the century, we've become much more interested in new media. And I refer there to audio, of course, that's it's not just taking a text and reading it. When you prepare translation for the ear, it has a completely different discourse structure than for the eye. And it needs to be redone. In the old days, Bible translators used to take the text that they had prepared for printing and simply read it onto a tape or something, and say, so there you are. But that's not an audio text. Audio must be completely revamped so that it has mnemonic features and all the features of morality that enable the audience to hear it clearly and to remember. Film, of course, we've had the Jesus film and, and other films for some time, and they give... The, the wonderful thing is that a lot of things that you have to say when you actually write the text, translate in a written form, you don't need to do so when it's performed. You don't need to say, Jesus said loudly. You just use a loud voice or through glances, through gestures, speed of voice, crowd reactions, all these things. And um, it makes translation very dynamic, very interesting. The E-edition, this is something Bible Society has been looking at, and the millennial generation love to be involved in the process of things. They don't just want to be given the product, here's your Bible. They want to engage in how it came to be. And, and an e-edition allows them to do that. It has hypertext, so instead of following in a linear form, you jump around according to your particular interest. Right, then we get on to people like Michael Cronin. In 2016, he raised the question, what is language? And my thinking is that language is just a code to transmit a message. And if that is the case, there's lots of different codes one can use. And of course, artists have been doing this through the ages, as we saw last night with poetry. So there are many different forms, and I've been exploring different media using song and rap and art, visual art, as well as the performance arts. Then Edwin Gensler, 2016, he raised the issue of post-translation. We are now in a post-translation age. Now he's speaking from a secular vantage, so it is different. Because when you're working with high-value texts, as we have with scripture, the whole thing of faithfulness to the original becomes more of a, an important aspect. But it's something we have to think about. Anthony Pym, back in 2006, he said, no longer are we doing translation, it's now localization. 
What's important is getting the maximum amount of information to the maximum amount of people. And I've sort of taken that as part of my modus operandi. I try to work with local communities, reaching as many people as possible, giving them the information that's in the text. So faithfulness to the past, which was the old main feature that we judged the translation, is now changing to acceptability in the present. Does this text meet the needs of the community now in the 21st century? The impact of the performance criticism, the audience plays a big role because the audience impacts the performance. The audience is a key element, either by their response, giving praise, or not giving any response. Now, in our Western audiences, generally I don't see anybody waving their hands and singing. But in the Zulu community, when they give their poem, if people aren't snapping fingers, the person will just stop speaking because they're not getting the encouragement to keep going. And that they say that the, the Zulu audience lets you know immediately if you're being successful or not. So if the audience and their needs are important, we need to recreate something that meets the needs of the audience <coughs> as well. And so James Maxey says, this doesn't mean that the Bible translator doesn't respect the source text, but, and that's what I consider really important, recuperating the written text may no longer be the primary goal of Bible translation. It is an important goal. But if we're having a look at the swing, that translation is now more to meet the needs of the community today than faithfulness to the past. And so this might be a bit radical for some of you, but this is the way that we're beginning to explore it in South Africa. I am, anyway. Right, perception theory, those of you that have worked in a reality will know what this is, but the reader plays a creative role in determining the meaning of a text. The imagination of the reader together with the text determines the meaning. And it's necessary because of those ambiguities, those gaps in the text. And as we know, poetry is full of gaps. They arise partly because of translation ambiguities or homophones or the use of metaphors, how you're going to interpret the metaphor. And we'll see some examples where the local people have interpreted it quite differently from how the original author intended. I've said the gaps are mainly filled in line with the needs and the experience of the local community, of the readers or the audience. I'm talking here about a relatively unsophisticated audience who haven't been exposed to much biblical knowledge. And so their needs and their experience are going to shape the way they read the text. Other things, of course, the literary um, context, the historical context, the social context are important. And when I ran workshops with these folks, we tried to look at those issues. But the main thing is, how can this text help me today? Well, I've switched my timer off. We track me. Okay, the empirical study, we're looking at three things. First, traditional translation, which is from one language to another. And I'll be looking at some praise psalms going to Zulu. The second one is what I call imitation translation, where we use the form, the structure of lament psalms to help people in pain compose their own laments. It's not strictly translation, it's imitating the form of the Hebrew. 
And then thirdly, going from written media into other media, I'm exploring dance and song and rap and poetry and various things. So first of all, we have Psalm 134 and Psalm 93. We worked with some Zulu youth, had a workshop for four days. They were exposed to the principles of Bible translation, to poetics, orality and performance. We studied Zulu poetry, Hebrew poetry, very basic level. And then looked at the key terms in Psalm 134, made sure they understood the exegetical issues, only three verses, and then they made their own translation. So here's one. This young man, he decided that the phrase <coughs> that's usually translated, those standing at night, come bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Now, he took the word stand to mean persevere, and he took night to mean through times of difficulty. So his interpretation in the Zulu means, come bless the Lord, all you who are persevering through difficulties. Now what's so interesting, two different Zulu poets did this independently and they both were going through significant trauma in their lives. Their particular denomination had just, the big people had stolen all the money and their whole denomination, they had to close the Bible Institute and their lives and futures were on the, on the line. So they were reading their context into this song. This one just shows an example, the last verse of Psalm 134. Um, the English you see there, the ESV says, May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. And the Zulu poets, first of all, they wanted to keep the rhythm, and so they added another line. So you've got two parallel um, clauses there. The one who separates darkness and night, who separates water and sea. Okay, it's keeping within the imagery of creation. It's adding the emphasis because because they just wanted to emphasize it, but of course also for the rhythm. All right, here we have Psalm 93.3. You have this wonderful chikala structure. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. And so the poets needed to try and reproduce that ascending. You can see the waves growing from the structure of the Hebrew. I haven't shown you the Hebrew here, but you see that the Zulu there, now they said even if the enemy attacks, they attack both ways, they attack strongly like a lion. So there's an increasing intensity. The lion is introduced as a, a metaphor of something that's the most powerful in their minds. Okay, I'm going quite quickly through these examples. This one is similar, but here they've used, they've kept the metaphor of water, you're powerful about the big sound of the rivers, Above the roar of the waves of the sea, you are powerful. And then they added a fourth line, again for the rhythm, that's one reason. But they introduced, you are powerful above the highest mountain. Now that for them is the superlative. They couldn't imagine anything bigger than that, but Lord, you are bigger. Here we have um, the use of wind, the wind's blowing, it's blowing a tsunami. They made up a nice Zulu word from that tsunami. You're above the strong gales, and again, they've got four lines in order to keep the rhythm. Okay, that was just, just the phrase. 
there that you can see the kind of rhythm they're trying to establish and they're using music. Um, here in this next example, they have mixed metaphors, which is very typical of Sulu poetry. They're using the idea of a lion, strong winds, and blowing strongly with power. So you've got the two images. But notice that in verse 4, they repeat the same images, which is important. The Hebrew in verse 4 says, but Lord, you are greater than the, those waves of the sea. And so it's important that if they change the metaphors in verse 3, they must maintain the same metaphors in verse 4, which they did. So they took that and they made that a chorus of a song, and they repeat that over and over. So the audience hears the other parts of the song, but they go away remembering the chorus. And they usually will start singing along and humming and clapping. And so it's one way of taking the main point of the song home with them. Psalm 93 verse 1, I love the way they trance this particular poet. They actually don't call themselves poets, they call themselves poetry fans. They're just young, unemployed Zulu youth. Just people, I said, whoever's interested, come along. If you love music and you love poetry, come along. And here they talk where the ESV says, um, your, the ESV, the Lord reigns, his robes and majesty, the Lord reigns. So they wrote, Lord, you are a lion. That word, it's the royal lion. The house, the ruling house, they use this symbol, Uyinkunyoma. And so, but it also has the characteristic of a king. And the English says the Lord is robed, he's put on strength, it's got these uh, metaphors of wearing, and the Zulu said you're wearing power. So they caught the idea, I think, very nicely. <laughs> 
okay, you might think that looks very sloppy and, you know, is this really a song? But these are youngsters, two young rap artists, and they took Psalm 145 and they just had a lot of fun with it. And the thing is that when the local people do the translation, they're highly committed to the text. I've got some, there's a wonderful Zulu published author, poets, and I asked him to work on some of these psalms with me, and I said to these youngsters, if you can't make your own translation, use his and just perform it. But none of them wanted to do that. The idea of owning the translation was much more important to them than having a perfect translation. So this is something a little bit challenging for those of us that are so sticky about exactly what the original authorial intent is. But you know, these youngsters didn't know that the Bible had poetry. They've got a strong, rich history of praise poetry among the Zulu people, and they all write their own poems and perform them. But when they discovered that the Bible has poetry, they got really excited. And so I feel for the 21st century, we want these youngsters to know there's something here that I can participate in. We're actually in the process of starting an online platform, and it's just taking off without any marketing. Everybody wants to get on and comment on other people's performances and make up their own. Bad people talk bad about us. They spit on our backs. 
And then we had studied Psalm 55, and so they make a reference there. If we had wings, we'd fly away to a better place. And then God made them talk nonsense. We noticed that one of the, the counter petitions in the men's is often for um, justice to be executed against those who caused the, the problem. And this was tremendously releasing to many of these people who've been highly abused by the system or by various other people. And by asking God to make these people who cause trouble for them go, bad, go mad, that is the worst curse in the African community. Because that means they'll be shunned, ostracized. They won't have the basics to survive food and shelter. Some of the personal laments were very moving. Uh, one woman, and, and these are again are unemployed people who've probably got about a grade six schooling. And she wrote in Zulu, this is the translation, Lord, till when will I suffer? For how long will people play me? What a wonderful metaphor there. They make me like a car that, that won't start, which of course we see lots of in South Africa. A useless one. To win. I would never have thought of that metaphor, but what a beautiful metaphor. That just, she's been used and abused and now she's useless. That's how she feels. Another woman wrote this beautiful description, Lord, sweep my soul. I often find myself praying that now. What a beautiful way of expressing, Lord, just get rid of all the muck. Sweep my soul. Okay, the third thing translated into other media, I started working with some wisdom psalms, Psalm 133, and I've just put the Hebrew up here really just to show the repetitions. When I work in workshops with these uneducated people, we look at the Hebrew in order to see the kind of poetic features, mainly repetitions, but also repeated sounds, repeated words, sometimes seeing parallel ideas or chiasm and inclusio. They love learning all these things. So here you'll notice the word job appears twice, of course, the, the blue, and uh, we have a number of other words that are repeated there. Over the head. Uh, you know the song, how great it is, how wonderful it is when brothers dwell together in unity. It's like the good oil poured, falling down over the head, over the beard, the beard of Aaron, which falls down over the garments. And of course, there's more than one interpretation there, but it wasn't really that serious. Um, because what we're trying to get at here is the main point. You know, when you're working with different levels of education, when the people are not highly educated or they're young, I've done this with school children as well, then we just try to get the main message across. And so the main message is in verse 1 and in verse 3, how wonderful it is when brothers dwell together in unity, is verse 1, verse 3, there God commands a blessing, life abundant or life forevermore. And the, the, the in-between bit, 1b and 2, is talking, giving two metaphors, it's like the oil poured down over the beard, and so we think about the quality of oil, or it's like the dew coming from Mount Hermon and refreshing the arid hills of Jerusalem. And so we decided, well, probably the oil is talking about nourishment and um, strengthening the hair, and the abundance. It's not just rubbed into the hair, but it's poured down, down, down. And so the image of down, blessing coming from from the Lord coming down and being spreading out and going to others and bringing life to the community. And so that's the main picture we were trying to get across.
So there the English is just showing you the repeating running down on the beard, running down on the, I think this is Robert Alter's translation, uh, running down on the collar of his robes. So now, uh, I've worked with a dancer, a friend of mine who's a dancing teacher, and she spent a lot of time thinking, praying about this, and came up with beautiful choreography. And she explained it as starting with a single, um, a single guitar, somebody high up, and starting just quietly singing the song, and I'll show you just now the song, is his translation, the, the singer's translation of the song, and then that melted into a violin, a woman playing the violin, and she picked it up, and then there were a whole lot of dances below, and so you've got this idea of falling down, you can symbolically see it, because the, the first singer's high up and then down, and then the third layer, they started doing head rolls, very intentional pronounced head rolls. And she understood that as when brothers choose intentionally to dwell in harmony, God commands his blessing. It's a decision of the mind. And so these very distinctive head rolls, and as they did all in harmony, in harmony with the music and in harmony with one another. And as they did that, they reached out their hands in blessing the next row. And then the next row of dances came alive. And so it was this idea of the nourishment and the refreshment reaching out to more and more. And eventually to the bottom line. And then they started doing squats or a knee bend. And the top row were doing a shallow knee bend. And as it came down, a deeper and deeper knee bend. And so you have this visual effect of something pouring down, flowing down. And then at the end, they all moved up. The three of them moved out through three different, with all the people moved out through three different exits, taking the blessing to the community outside. Okay, that's, that was the picture. And so here I'm just trying to correlate the Hebrew words with the actions. And so, first of all, it starts with a hine, a behold, which indicates intentionality. Give your ears, pay attention. And that head roll, that distinctive head roll was part of that symbolism. People living in unity, that was shown very clearly through the synchrony of all the, the dancers and together with the music and with the, the instrumentalists. The blessing, the hands reaching down and out. Okay, we wouldn't know that it was oil and dew, but there was clearly something life-giving, life-giving, because as the person touched the next row, they came alive, and so on. And so you had that lovely picture. Okay, some conclusions. The interpretation of a psalm depends on the hearer's context. Now, Psalm 133 has many different ideas, whether it was to strengthen the northern and southern tribes, or to build family unity at a time when that was under distress, or, or whatever. But for these people, they were seeing it quite differently. And I've, I've done that song with all sorts of different communities, and it's very interesting. Uh, I did it with these um, drug women addicted to drugs, very toxic drug in, in one of the townships. And they came up with ideas like, um, it's like having half a dozen bread rolls. I said, what? And they said, to be able to have so much food to eat, there couldn't be anything more 
wind up for the nets. You know, these are people living on the grid line or below the grid line. So the, the Psalms give that space for people to come and bring their own interpretation and meaning. That's what the second point says. The language of the Psalms is open enough to allow personal interpretation or translation. And the third thing that I found very powerful is that inviting communities to participate in working with the, with the text, with the biblical text, sometimes even the Hebrew, it's very empowering. It gives them a tremendous sense of self-worth and it gives us insights. That, that example of standing by night, persevering through difficulty, something I would never have thought of. It's not in any of the English translations, and I've looked at many. And yet, because of this context, that's how he understood it. Good. I think that's enough. Thank you very much.